0: Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodak. I'm here with John Bewin. John, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing okay, all things considered. Josh, how are you?
0: I'm very good. And I've been looking forward to this with both... I, into, I, I think that this is going to be... We could go in more directions than any guest I've had. Huh. And I'm going to share how I came to you. And then I think we have a many different directions we could go into. We won't be able to cover nearly as many things as, as I'd like to. And in fact, you're the host of... of and. Um, I'm a producer, I guess, of, of several podcasts or one podcast called Seen on Radio. Yes. And of which I've listened intently to three, series, uh, three uh, seasons of it. And the way I came to the first one was I was invited by... Fr- I'm flattered, by the way. Oh. <laughs> I'm
1: flattered that you've listened to three whole seasons.
0: I'm, I'm glad that you're flattered, but I really couldn't stop. Once I listened to the first one, the first episode of the first season, I was definitely going to finish that one. Mm. And the same with the others. I mean, you, you take on the topics. The, first, okay, the way I found the first one which was I think season uh, three was a friend of mine invited me to join him in a group of white men speaking about race. Hmm. And they had a whole bunch of literature to read before joining and I haven't yet joined. I'm still thinking about it. And one of the things it said was we follow the, um, we like, I forget exactly how they put it, but seen seen on radio season three is seeing whiteness.
1: Actually season two, just to clarify. Season two. Okay. Yeah.
0: And it's you as a white man looking at whiteness through 14 episodes. Partly, it might seem like that's a lot. And partly I'm thinking, how could you only do so mm-hmm. many episodes? Yeah. And I thought, I got to talk to this guy. And then before I wrote you, or when I wrote you, I was already onto the next season, which was on men. And readers of my blog and, and listeners of my podcast will know that's another topic that's of, of importance to me. And then you wrote back and said, by the way, the next episode, which somehow I hadn't looked at, is the repair, which is on the environment. Specifically, more on climate, but the environment in general as well. Yeah, yeah. all of these things overlap in ways that I, you really dove in, disentangled some things, recognized some things are tangled, Mm -hmm. and I, it's uh. Now we could go in many many different directions. Although I'm I'm really curious how you got started, and so you're at, at Duke University's School of um, Center for for documentary.
1: Center for Documentary Studies, yeah, at Duke, and yeah, where I'm the director of the audio program, so I'm just I just run one of the programs there, and that involves some teaching. I teach audio documentary making, and uh, my background, and and I produce the podcast as part of my job. Mm -hmm. Uh, seen on radio. And by the way, I like to, since it's an audio medium that we're where people are hearing us, I like to say (laughs) that for people going to look for for the podcast, it's S-C-E-N-E on radio (laughs) is the name of the show. Uh, And that's so that's part of my job. But uh, my background before that is I was had a 20 plus year career in public radio as a journalist and audio document and make um, radio documentary maker in the public radio system.
0: Do you think of yourself more as a storyteller more as an educator more as a journalist? Mm. It could be a lot of these all of the above.
1: Right. Yeah, all of the above. I guess, you know, probably journalist. Although, you know, it's funny because I work at a place, a Center for Documentary Studies, where people like to talk about documentary and like to distinguish sometimes talk even with a little bit of disdain about journalism as opposed to documentary, which I don't, which I don't. To me it's, you know, good uh, There are certain many lots of documentary is is a kind of journalism as well, but yes, yeah, that's probably the the word that fits the best of of those. But yeah, sometimes and I and I have done forms of audio that are more creative and narrative, and so yeah, certainly I, I, all of the above ultimately.
0: Now something made me think about how well produced your shows are, and how mine is. Is I'm like I hope he doesn't. I hope you listen to mine, and I hope you don't. <laughs> I think could really bring up the the quality of the sound there, or something like that. Uh, or not just the quality of the sound, but it's really well produced. You you do the, you do a lot of like you'll talk to someone, and it leads into the next, and especially with your co-hosts, the way that it draws people in, and I mean it's kind of funny because sometimes you'll say something to them, and they'll say something back as if you're just learning something for the first time, then you'll kind of fill in that you actually know about this, but it, it's compelling. And I imagine this is, yeah. must be very well thought out and directed and, and produced.
1: Yes. Some of that is, uh, is you could say performative in the sense that, uh, and it has actually varied some, like in the seeing white season, most of those conversations um, for people who haven't listened, there's a, uh, part of every each episode, there's a conversation between myself and my friend and collaborator Chenjerai Kumanyika, who's a who's a uh, scholar. Uh, these days, he's headed to NYU. At that time, he was at uh, Clemson, moving to Rutgers. Anyway, brilliant guy, and we have this conversation. And and in those 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 were not very they were a little bit mapped out, like broad strokes, but they weren't. And then in later seasons, we've actually. Probably done more preparation of the uh, of the conversation parts of the, and then some of it is obviously just very very clearly scripted. It's documentary style scripted, you know, with me reading narration mixed in with you know audio from interviews and and sometimes from scenes out in the world and music and so on. So it's it's produced documentary style uh, audio, kind of in the in the broad. Tradition that people would recognize of, you know, this American life, or mm-hmm. it's not as, as elaborate and, and complex as Radio Lab, but it's right, but it's in that from that kind of those wings of the public radio world that I come out of, and there is some preparation that goes into those those conversations. And Chenjerai actually, with that first season, really encouraged that because, and and I think it serves the listeners well. I hope it does for us to be putting some thought into those conversations, you know, kind of along the lines of, well, I'll say something like this. And then what do you think, what would you want to say to that? And we kind of, we kind of map it out a little bit in order to make it more, frankly, just kind of um, streamlined and we hope to really make a lot of sense and make it coherent and, and not waste the listener's time and right. Move through the material in the most effective way we can
0: yeah you have to weave together a lot of history and on on the repair, a lot of science and things that aren't necessarily going to be fun to listen to, but you make it that way. I mean not necessarily fun, but engaging mm-hmm. And you're taking on topics that you know whenever I write about i mean like you talked about race, sex, gender, the environment. When I write about any of these things, people write back to me, there's always someone angry about something, <clears throat> and whatever angle you take, whatever position you look you look through you're going to get someone angry. I mean, I listened to it and I'm like, it's compelling. And there's some parts from like this, I didn't think of that before. And there's some parts from like cringing. I'm like, how could he possibly come to that conclusion? And, (laughs) and yet I want to keep listening. And so um, I'm
1: curious about those parts.
0: (laughs) Oh, it's uh, well, I, I wanted to, let me ask this first. Yeah. Yeah. To go into those topics, were you nervous? Were you enthusiastic? Were you scared? Did you expect um, what kind of, did you expect like, yeah. praise or blowback or what?
1: Yeah, I was, uh, I, I guess I would say, scared. Um, uh, for example, with whiteness, you know, when I decided to do a series that was going to look at race and racism through the lens of whiteness as a thing, like how did we get it? How did we get the notion that some people, that we're going to call some people white, that there's a white race? And obviously, of course, that's inseparable from the very idea of a handful of racial groups in the human race? How did we get the idea that we're going to call some people white and some people black? Of course, that was the first distinction. And then it got filled in by so-called scientists, these other groupings. Anyway, so how did all that go down? And in fact, and then how does that function? And what does that all have to do with the very serious problem of racism that we have today? And wh- how can that help inform that, you know, the world we live in today in ways that can help us, you know, work against it more effectively? So so a series that started with that premise. Yeah, I had some trepidation. I've done a lot of reporting, as I say in the first episode, that I could... Th- that I considered to be about race certainly covering in documentaries and and journalism say for NPR or or for Minnesota Public Radio which I worked for years ago covering various you know communities of color and so on but this was going to be a different sort of approach and and yeah I had some trepidation I also had had a uh, concern about well what is it how does it work like I'm a white dude am aren't I maybe the last person who can do this, who can do it, you know, because part of whiteness is that white people have blinders on about whiteness and about how it works. So how do we deal with that? You know? So, so, so I ended up feeling like, well, on the one hand, I don't want to just um, leave it to black people and other people of color to tell the truth about race. I think we need white people doing their best to tell the truth about race and racism. On the other hand, I'm going to need some backup. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I approached uh, Chandra Kumanyika, And we had, you know, he joked about, oh, you're asking me to speak for all white people and or for black people. I'm sorry. Mm. But I genuinely not only for the optics of it, but sincerely felt like, OK, I, I feel like we need a person of color and preferably a black person to be in on the conversation and to check me and to, right, help make sure I'm getting it right. And also, frankly, then he ends up being just a little more, sometimes quite a bit more kind of blunt and angry and, and clear eyed about how, just how pervasive and, you know, and deep racism is in this country. than I, than I, even though I'm trying my best, you know, that I am likely to, to be. So, yeah. And with each of them, Um, man, you say, yeah, uh, man is the title of season three, but I would describe it as really being, that was a shorthand title that we like, but it's really, I would describe it as being about patriarchy Mm -hmm. and about that system in the way that season two is about white supremacy. And then, yeah, with the climate season, season five, that felt to me like, in a way, the next you know the next kind of natural um, thing because I, because I see these connections so deeply and and one of the things that we haven't even said yet is that I think one theme that runs through even though each of these series has a title you know that's that's referring to white supremacy to patriarchy season four which we haven't mentioned is about democracy in America but each time as our explore, exploration goes on we end up getting into into economics and, and capitalism mm-hmm. and uh, systems that are really about exploitation, economic systems, that these that these other kind of isms, to my mind, are actually almost more um, tools to kind of further, like to divide and to serve this system of exploitation more than they are kind of the core of the story themselves. So from that standpoint, when I came to think about season five, what became the repair on the climate crisis, it felt like um, a natural progression from these other ones that we've done in particular, because, because we were even going to go more directly at, at the role of capitalism as we know it, at least in, in bringing us to this crisis.
0: You were just talking about the subjects and their interrelatedness. And I mean, you listen to, to any 10 seconds, and your personal involvement. I mean, you hinted at this, becomes really a key part of it. I mean, you mentioned you're a white dude on the on race. You're also a dude on men. And in the in the repair, you say, I'm still flying. And it's, I mean, it's really I part of the stuff that made me cringe was like you could hear at one point you said you don't feel guilty about, I forget something, but I I felt like there's still, you're working through some things here and maybe part of it is to work through, but we're all working through these things. And so we want to hear these things because no one is outside of these things. Yeah, And these are the, and yet we often don't talk about them except with people we agree with. Hmm. I mean, I I can imagine sleepless nights of like, how's this going to come out? What am I, how am I going to do this? After it's done, I imagine you changed significantly over the course of doing these things. And so I would guess that by episode 14 of, of uh, Seeing Whiteness, you're already looking back at, uh, by the time you're on episode 14, you're probably looking back at episode one and thinking like, oh, I, that, I should have done it totally different or something like that. Did you change? Yeah, not that, not that
1: in small ways, yes. And, and I listened to, uh, but not, not in huge ways. I, I, I don't... Um... I feel okay about, although truthfully that season more than the others, we really were making it as we put, you know, we were making those episodes as we put them out. And I didn't, I thought when we started, I thought it was going to be six or eight episodes and it became 14. And also I had no sense that a series on whiteness in 2017 would be the thing that would put my little podcast on the map and earn a, peabody award nomination and have the audience grow 20 fold i thought the if anything the opposite it was a little university-based podcast with you know four or five thousand listeners per episode and i thought i wonder if we'll lose half of those people when i do this series on whiteness and obviously very much something different happened i didn't anticipate that but i no i i, I and when i listen back to some things now there are definitely some things i would say differently Um but not, you know, not huge. I feel okay about it. And I'm still pretty proud of it. I I will say too that yes, and this is, this was the other part of your question. It was transformational for me. It was uh, all each of these, um, each of these were, but probably especially seeing white. And the one way that I would say it, and I, and this is where I guess one way that I sometimes articulate what I Hope the series does for other white people in particular, and this was sort of my journey. Is that I? I think I went from being someone who, um, who thought, uh, you know, I've been a sort of progressive white liberal all my life, who certainly was interested in racism. I'd done a fair bit of reporting about it, as I've said. I've read quite a few books going back to the '90s. I was reading books like *Race Trader*, you know, which is. <laughs> you know, which is sort of a fairly radical idea about, you know, as a white person, you need to be a traitor to your race Um, and reporting on the civil rights movement and this and that. uh, uh, So I, I thought that I knew a lot about race. And I also thought of myself as basically one of the good ones. And I thought that, but there was still a sense in which I thought that I was on the sidelines. And I thought that it was that I could just go about my life as a white person who's not, as far as I, you know, certainly as far as I'm conscious, I'm not discriminating against black or brown people in any tangible way. I'm not telling racist jokes, um, whatever, whatever kind of uh, patterns of thinking that, that run through my mind that you, that you might call racist. I'm certainly trying not to act on those. Right. So, so I'm not part of the problem and I'm kind of cheering for, black and brown people to win their struggle against those other white people over there who are the racists. And I'm even maybe a especially good good one because I do sometimes journalism or documentary work about those kinds of struggles, right? And I went from that, being that sort of person, by the end of 14-part series, Seeing White, of having a much deeper sense of, of just how baked in white supremacy is to all of our institutions, all of our systems, into our history, and um, a, much, a much bigger a job it is, is going to be to really root that out. And my role in it as being uh, inescapably complicit just by walking around this country in a, in a body that is seen as as so-called white if i am not actively working to dismantle those systems so i think that's that's one way at least of of articulating the impact that that experience had on me and and i've heard people who've listened to the series express something like that as well that they've found it to be you know this is stuff you can't unsee and that it's been in some way kind of transformational for for a fair number of white people in particular, the black and brown people who listen to the series and a lot of uh, we've had a lot of heard from a lot of those folks <laughs> one way of saying it, i they know they know how pervasive and deep and ever present racism is because they experience, but they like like most white people may not have likely have not learned. Some of the history, and so don't so for them too it's kind of eye opening like oh, this helps me see why the world feels the way it does when I learn about what happened in the fourteen hundreds in Portugal and what happened in the sixteen hundreds in Virginia and in what what were the first two laws were that were passed by the u s Congress that were both absolutely white supremacist laws and and so on.
0: I can't imagine someone, anyone listening to that, I think, like, I don't mind if you pause this conversation, go to listen to those, because, I mean, it's, to take that on strikes me as courageous and also, um, I mean, also, I hope fun, (laughs) just today. It is my kind of fun. (laughs) (laughs) One of the big premises in it is that, uh, and I think you had Ibram Kendi on to describe this, was that, and I think this is what what you might've been referring to, was that first came slavery First came racist acts, then came racism. And oh, yeah. this was a very, this is one of the things that I really liked because I've been playing around with that idea in my head. And then just today by chance, I'm working on a book. And do you know the book capitalism and slavery by Eric Williams from 1944?
1: I have not read it. I've heard of it.
0: I haven't read it. I just came across it. And it's, it, it, I'm, I'm going to quote it. This is, I was not preparing for this podcast and it said, mm. Um, here then is the origin of Negro slavery. The reason was, and by the way, uh the guy is the he was the Prime Minister of Trinidad and Tobago and also an author. And he writes, the reason was economic, not racial. It had to do not with the color of the laborer, but the cheapness of the labor. As compared with Indian and white labor, Negro slavery was eminently superior. And then he continues, uh anyway, the reason was economic, not racial. It had to do not with the color of the labor, but the cheapness of the labor. Yeah. And that is where it began. And then after the, the Europeans, the whites who were enslaving, and of course slavery had been around for since before recorded history, then they started defining, I think they felt guilty. They must have felt like, well, this is this horribly violates due unto others. And there must be a reason that it's okay. And then they defined blackness, I guess, or Negro or whatever. And then that define whiteness back yeah yeah and now I'm going to go into now here's where I go in a different direction Okay, is that for me I look at the system and I'm strongly persuaded by how I think of when Nelson Mandela started learning Afrikaans in prison he wanted to some criticized him and said you're learning the language of the oppressor he said yes I'm learning the language of the oppressor because they are there's a system that's a problem they're not the cause of the system they're part of the system as well, and they can be allies to change the system. And so what you would call, what you're calling white supremacy, I would fold in more with capitalism or with a power system yeah. in which the whites are not the cause of it. They're caught up in it just as much. Mm-hmm. And just as much as De Klerk got the Nobel Peace Prize with Mandela, I wouldn't ascribe to whites the, the malevolence that I see is in the system, but that they're caught up in just as much. Now that doesn't mean they're affected the same way, obviously.
1: Yeah. 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 I don't think, I don't, I don't think we disagree about that. I think there might be a a level of, there might be some nuances in the way that we would each think about it or describe it. But I think that's where we end up going is that, first of all, uh, Yes, to to kind of pick up on the Eric Williams quote that I wrote, we 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 say follow the money. Mm-hmm. Actually, with each of these, um, with each of these systems, less so with patriarchy, maybe in that that that's a whole lot about there's a, there's I would say power and control, and yes, then also economics, right? It's like who gets the spoils, who gets who has control. But yes, it's it's more, it is about systems. I guess I think that I have really mixed feelings as a white person. And this is something that I I just, I toss around in my mind a lot and try to make sense of is for us as white people. I, I There's part of me that wants to go easy on myself and on fellow white people because as you say we're we're caught up in a system we were born into a system that we didn't create that's certainly true um and that's what i say actually um where you might have heard me say that i don't know if i don't know if you've seen my ted my tedx talk but i say i don't feel a lot of guilt history is not my fault or yours right um in that sense i don't feel guilt but i also am very wary about letting us off the hook too much because I think we engage in a lot of willful, motivated denial, <laughs> right? And it's, it's just really hard. I find it very hard to kind of parse that and to separate out. So I do think, and in, in, in what I see oftentimes in reaction to, um, to facts and lessons like this, is there, there, there certainly are some white people who are ready and sincerely ready to to have the reaction of like, "Oh, I never really understood before right how racism functions, how deep it is, and now that I see it more clearly, I'm going to actually make changes in my life in the way that i I mean some people have that reaction. a lot of white people don't a lot a lot respond by fending it off in one way or another first of all, i mean the at one extreme is. Screw you! You're a white person who hates white people. I'm not going to listen to another word you say. But then there are a lot of other people who are more like, well, in fact, there's a guy in part 13 when you get uh, of part 13 of Seeing White, who goes to this uh, anti-racism conference, and he hears this incredibly compelling rundown of government handouts and supports for white people in North America going back to the 1600s, right up through the GI Bill and the FHA loans, you know, and so on, and kind of just shrugs it off and says, well, you know, there's there's racism and it goes in all directions. You know, Chris Rock once said something about Asian people that he shouldn't have said in a joke, you know, we're all kind of there. So a whole lot of white people, yes, are enmeshed in a system, but also are very happy to be enmeshed in that system and will defend it And that is a very, very powerful force uh, in our country. I think we can see it today, right?
0: Yeah, there's, uh, I was also, what led me to reading the Eric Williamson was reading a book about, um, it wasn't The Color of Law. He was a guest on the podcast. Uh, It was on LA. It it was talking about how laws were taken off the books that were race-based. And it's so, it's so, on the one hand, unthinkable, and on the other hand, like that they would put in, you know, this clause: only someone of the of the Caucasian race can buy property within this, you know, this area, and only they can get loans. And and then they took the laws off the books, and they found other ways of doing it. You know, they they would like intimidate, and and, and I'm like, how? On the one hand, how can they do that? On the other hand, how many things are going on right now that I'm that I'm not noticing? And that I could be doing something on certainly with the environment. There's a lot of people that I think we look back with absolutely with with clarity on a lot of things in the past on race, certainly slavery, for example. Yeah, we look at it with perfect. We believe we have such clarity. And yet at the time it was not clear at all. And we take statues down of people that own slaves And I think it's pretty clear that should we make it to sustainability, sustainability, future generations will look back at us and and take down many statues Mm -hmm. of people today that seem very clear of that we're polluting. We know we're polluting. We know that people being that are harmed at the other end of it. And I think there's a case to be made, but I'm not going to make it now about parallels or similarities between slavery and pollution. But putting that aside. Mm There's living by one's values. And even if I can't change the whole world, I'd like to think that if you magically transported me back to 1800, that I would, even if I were, even if you put me in the middle of Alabama and I was surrounded by, you know, hundreds of miles in every direction by people who if if they're white, they believed that slavery was good. Yeah. And I would think that I would make my way out of that territory, Mm. at least Mm. if not try to do something about it. And So I devote myself to sustainability because I see that as the issue of our time. And I think that people, even if I I believe that I will succeed in changing culture, American culture, maybe global culture, even if I don't, I can't see how I can't do my best. And even if I don't try to lead others, which I think is the most important thing to do, I have to at least live by my values and, and try to pollute as little as I can. I don't see that culture around in America, in America, it just seems like doing to others is not a part of our environmental consideration. Yeah. Leave it better than you found it is, is gone from our environmental culture.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you're right. I think, and I suspect, I wonder if given that emphasis for you on. Um, making personal choices to have as little impact on a uh, negative impact on the environment as possible. If you, I wonder if in listening to our season, the repair on climate, mm-hmm. if you were struck by how little we talked about that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Cause you're putting it all in government and, or you're, the, the last episode was about, uh, changing culture, yeah and I was like, yes, change culture, yes, that's <laughs> what we have to do it, it's our beliefs, it's our role models, it's our stories yeah. it's our belief in the GDP growing that we must do that, that addiction yeah and but something there are two things that were missing that uh, came to me. one was reducing
2: mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. a
0: positive joy to life,
2: because
0: mm. I think for most people reducing means I have this chart on my on my blog that shows my how much my, my ecological footprint by some online footprint, you know, people can see it, find the link on my blog of, it shows me in 2016 roughly, roughly what Americans emit a little bit less. Yeah. Uh, and then two and a half years later, it's down by over 90%. And I think most people look, and then I have the American by comparison. So it was a little more than what I did in 2016 before I stopped flying and yeah. avoiding packaged food. And I think most people look at that difference and think, well, we have to, it's not fair that those people down way down below, oh, and and the the global average, I'm actually below the global global average. I think most people look at the difference between American pollution and global average pollution and say, it's not fair that they have so little, we should raise them up to us. (laughs) But this is a graph of pollution, not quality of life. Yes. So I think we can lower our pollution and raise our quality of life and go below the world average.
1: Yeah. I agree. I think the only, th- I, I, the point of emphasis where, where maybe we differ is, um, and this, and this was also pretty strongly influenced by my co uh, my co-host for season five. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, we haven't said this, but for each of these seasons I've had a different that we've, that we're discussing, I've had a different co-host, someone who's kind of uh the right person for that. So a black man for the season on whiteness, a woman for the season on patriarchy and men and and a climate journalist uh, Amy Westervelt uh, for the season on climate and ecology. And I know that she feels a lot of her uh, journalism has been investigative work about the fossil fuel industry and not just in the present but in the past and really looking at how you know 50 years and 60 years ago they knew <laughs> they knew everything they needed to know. Uh, and how it's, you know, the kind of journalism that was done about the tobacco industry and how they covered it up. And so I think uh, so our emphasis is um, and and this also parallels to the uh, to the discussion about race, namely that that systems, yes, individual individual behavior matters. It's not at all to say that it doesn't matter, that it's not important and that we shouldn't do what we what we can as individuals, um, recycle, compost. I live in a two-bedroom condo, and and I get the thing from my energy company that shows I'm way below the average amount of, of of energy that a person, you know, that the average American uses. I drive. I'm in the market for either a hybrid or an EV right now. I have for many years driven cars that get good mileage, right? And and uh, and I try to vote with uh, environment in mind. Although, as we say <laughs> in the podcast. It's sort of a choice between Republicans who are sort of, you know, let's let industry have free reign completely versus Democrats who want to kind of moderately impose some limits. You know, all those things. And we should do those things. But those don't address the biggest changes that need to happen which are the nature of our very energy system and the nature of our transportation system and so on so as we you know so even we're talking during the week in which it looks like maybe there's actually going to be a bill out of congress uh to do more about climate than the than the government has ever done and that's going to do more to bend that arc on emissions in this country than than anything that any of us can do individually the other thing is Uh, And this is something that Amy brought to my attention, is that the fossil fuel industry loves nothing more than for us to be concerned about our individual actions, right? You can find BP ads, British Petroleum ads saying, do you know what your carbon footprint is, right? So they would love us for for all of us to be thinking of it as an individual, you know, it's up to us to solve. Rather than them, you know, after they have fought for decades to prevent any regulation uh, of their industry and fought against uh, the, you know, having their business replaced by renewables and so on and so forth. So all of that to say, I mean, it's both, right? We got to do both. Yeah. And you're doing better than I am on your individual commitments, and I and I genuinely respect and applaud you for that. But I think that's just by way of explanation why so much of our emphasis in that series was on people with power uh, need to be pushed to change systems, and that's going to get us there quicker. That's actually the only way we're going to get there, I believe.
0: So I'm going to, to me, systemic change ends with personal change, and and if we don't, I think the key thing about BP would see, BP wants you to look only at those things. Yeah. I would say if I, it's very difficult to lead someone to change, to live by values that I'm living the opposite of. Mm. And it's also the, every step that I take except the first one, the first one to avoid packaging, well, maybe a couple of second ones too, but the, I thought this is, I'm taking one for the team. I'm sacrificing here. I'm not sacrificing now. I've been off regular just know I've been off the grid mm. since May 22nd. So it's July 29th. I'm like maybe 70 days in, this is like a better part of a year. I mean, a, a reasonable part of a year that I've been off the grid in Manhattan mm. and people are like, Oh, that's so good. I'm like, it's fun. It's. And that's this cultural aspect that I want to change the most is this, is the expectation that it's, we have to, it's a burden, it's a chore. Yeah. And we don't really want to, and the more that I learn of anthropology and history is that we've thrived and we love, I mean, humans, we're in this weird anomaly now where we believe like, you know, whoever dies with the most toys wins and, and that we, um, it's really, when given head-to-head cho- competition choices between civilization and savagery, this is not the right terms to use, but terms that people might've used at the time, people prefer living closer to nature yeah yeah and we've totally lost it uh you know that's one of the main things i want to restore is that by doing it it's it will help us lead it will help us influence those with authority and we'll we'll just like it more Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and and to think otherwise would be we don't get it yet
1: yeah no I, i absolutely agree and i think this is true of all of these things right i think actually I think white people have a lot to gain from ending white supremacy. Mm-hmm. The usual the usual narrative is, we got to give we got to give up power and advantage and wealth, and that's true. There are some material things that need to be shared more equitably. But I would say that if we had a, and by the way, the the last episode of the most recent season, the last episode of the repair, which we call change everything. And that's also the name of the book that uh, that is featured in that episode. Um, I, I see that episode as kind of bringing together, as, as completing an arc that includes seeing white and men, and to some extent, season four, our, our democracy series, but certainly the because it sort of says it looks at um, again, yes, you put it, this, this huge cultural change that we need to make and getting away. From systems where we divide and conquer and exploit, as a means of exploiting, we exploit. um, We've exploited black people for centuries. Men have exploited women, and we all, as a culture, going back hundreds of years, I would say at least until the, you know, back to racial, the development of racial capitalism or global racial empire, as as Olufemi Taiwo puts it and the scientific revolution and so on. We have had this, um, and mercantilist capitalism and and onward, had this system, a culture of uh, exploitation of the earth and of other living beings and of the land. And those things are all, they're all tied together and they're all uh, have become part of a, a really damaging primarily Western culture that now is also spreading around the world.
2: Everywhere,
1: yeah. Right. So, um, yeah. So as you say, we really returned to that in the last episode, but in the first couple of episodes, we, several episodes, we sort of trace that as a cultural story of framing the climate crisis as, as a problem of culture. And um, yes. And I think we have, I agree with you that we could all be happier humans if we dealt with all those things, including returning to the way that human beings lived for most of our history as a species, which is, is very comfortably and naturally seeing ourselves as part of the natural world and living in, trying to live in harmony with it. It's quite recent, as you suggested, that people really got away from that. And, and some subsets of the world population got much more violently away from it than others and went off the rails.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, living memory, there once was a time when I think probably everyone on earth was a short walk away from a walk in solitude among the trees or along the beach. And now there are billions of people who may never get that in their whole lives. And so I want to I try the technique that I described at the beginning or okay. before we started recording. Sure. When you think about the environment, what do you think about? What motivates you? Like what, um, I don't mean what do you read in the paper about all the problems. Yeah. But what's the good stuff? Like what's when you're in the environment, when you're like in nature looking around, where where are you? Have you had experiences of it being in nature?
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, every week and when it's not brutally hot like it is right now, um, several times a week, I go to the woods. Um, I live in Durham, North Carolina. And it's it's uh I can just step out of my place and walk, but the places I like to walk are a few minutes drive away to get to places. Uh, there's Forest, Duke Forest, and there's a, uh, there's a state park practically in town a few miles away. And my wife and I often go together and we and we walk for a long time. And I just love it. You know, there's the Japanese concept of a forest bath. <laughs> and we allude to that but just i i really as i say at one point in talking with amy westerbelt in that series like you know i really have developed a thing for trees mm-hmm. uh, i just look around at them just in awe of the trees especially i have a you know i have a i'm a, I have a soft spot for the big the big guys you know the big oaks or the big beaches or whatever that are just sort of impressive. And there are some pretty nice several hundred year old oaks in these woods that I walk around in and the birds and, you know, the breeze, I just, I just, the, the moss and the ferns, I really, really, uh, it feels healing to me and I am. What yeah, go ahead.
0: I was going to say, what are the sights and sounds and smells and touches? the sensory experience.
1: Yeah. Just the the greenness being surrounded by green things and the, the clouds and the, and the blue sky up there. And, uh, yeah, the feeling of, especially if it's, you know, the more pleasant days or if it's cool and you've got a jacket, you know, where I live, it's usually not much more than jacket weather. Doesn't get all that cold here very often. And, um, just being out there and, and, and being amongst living things. And I'm very conscious of, especially as I've gotten more and more alarmed and concerned and dismayed, whatever word you want to use about, about the future of the natural world, given what we're doing to it, that the I should say the rest of the natural world, since we are part of the natural world. Sometimes I'm just thinking about that. And sometimes actually it brings gratitude that I was born early enough to have been able to live in a world that still has a lot of beautiful natural places and species, even though, of course, we've already cut down a lot and we've already wiped out a lot of species and so on. So there's mixed feelings, but there's sometimes a kind of wistfulness and a, just an awareness of looking up and seeing the, you know, seeing the leaves move in the wind and just being thankful that I still get to see there, see that and be there with that.
0: Yeah. I heard gratitude and thankful. What are the emotions that you feel that you feel gratitude that you get? I mean, you're there in the woods, the mosses. How do you feel you're with your wife? Maybe. Mm-hmm. What are some of the emotions that, that you feel?
1: Some of it is just a one, an important one is awe. Just that, just that it exists. All of it, (laughs) right? The fact that the universe exists, and that this planet exists. I'm my God, and I'm actually not religious, so I I say my God, you know, in that way, just as an expression. But but although I I you know I'm I'm an agnostic. I'm not a fierce atheist or anything, and I do wonder, right? Like I, I do have those moments. You know, really, did somebody not create this? So that's a whole, that's a whole other thing. but the fact that it exists, and just the wonder of I mean, if you were gonna invent a planet, how would you come up with this blue sky and these cl- clouds, these little fluffy things floating across the sky, and and all the little critters and the I uh, just marvel and the moon, you know, the greatest cliche of all, to be moved and to wonder at the the moon up there. Uh I, I find it all deeply awesome in the straightforward sense of that word and uh awe-inspiring and magnificent. And I feel extremely lucky that whatever set of forces caused quote unquote me, <laughs> right? And what's me? You know, I just that there happened to be my parents had this child in it and and I get to be part of this species where we not only get to be here and to see and hear and smell and taste all this stuff but we get to be aware and get to be aware of our awareness uh it's all quite quite miraculous and magical
0: based on these feelings of awe the magic the gratitude the wonder the my godness of it despite not being religious i invite you if you're up for it if you want to to think of something to do to act on those feelings, on those emotions that you're not already doing. And almost everyone hears something I didn't say. This is not at all what something you can do to help the environment. It's not, it may have some effect, but that's not the point. Okay. And I, I, I hereby release you from any of like <laughs> the New York Times says I'm supposed to do X. Right. And to, but to, to manifest the awe, the wonder, the magic, any or all of those things with three constraints if you're up for it something you're not already doing something that you do with your own hands. So not saying I'm going to get some other people to do something. Okay. I mean, you can do that, but that's not part of this. And something with some physical component so that there's no, not just watching a movie, a documentary or reading right. a book. And so that afterward you can say, um, you know, I left better than I found it in some way. And if you're up for it, most people don't, most people don't have something right at this stage, yeah, we go back and forth, and then they often say, "Oh you know, I've been meaning to do that for a while, right and right uh, if you're up for it, then I mean, we have to figure it out like in the call, uh and if you go for it, then I would say, "Would you mind coming back and sharing how it went
1: okay, okay, um yeah, I will say that that I'm not immediately coming up with an idea that fits that fits those descriptions. I will say, you know this is this is interesting because uh." My wife and I finally, after years of good intentions about this and saying we gotta we gotta do this, we finally did i guess maybe now it's been two years or so again. We finally started composting
2: mm-hmm.
1: instead of you know throwing the the veggies down the garbage disposal or whatever and that feels good and it and it fits all those descriptions it's we've got the little thing on the kitchen counter and actually we live in a, condo, a little condo complex, but there's a place with some trees right at the edge where we just created our own little compost pile. A neighbor downstairs has the service where the truck pulls up and takes the compost away. We just put it on the ground and have our own little compost pile. And so it's a you know 50-yard walk over to that spot and put them out there and got my little tool to rummage around with it and cover it up and walk away. And it's, it, it feels small. It also feels significant and it feels good. So that's like a relatively recent example of having done, I think, something like what you're talking about. I wish I had, if I hadn't done that one, I would say that. One. You would have said that. <laughs> but I'm going to have to think a little bit about, if you've got suggestions, I would, I would welcome them.
0: Well, the, the, you know, first I have to comment that, like, isn't it, it's, composting is oddly fun.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: In Manhattan, I have to walk it to Union Square, but when I drop it off, There's always someone who also walked like half a mile or a mile with their, what other people would consider their garbage. And so you have to, and whenever your conversation starts over looking, oh, I see what you've been eating this past week. Right. It's fun. It's always a a rewarding conversation. Yeah. Uh, Usually it's where these things tend to come from, great ideas that work for people tend to come from where do you miss these things or where do these things happen that you can augment it? So are there places where life is really missing awe? That it's like maybe it once was like that and, and it's been lost and you could restore it. Either it's been lost from your life or it's been lost from our society. Or maybe it's place where you haven't. You're like, you know, I want to do more. I don't do that enough. I want to do more of that. Mm-hmm. Those are the common places, not the only ones. Right, right.
1: Yeah, I, I, it's, there's nothing immediately coming to mind, I have to be honest.
0: Does any area come to mind of, because usually it, something leads to something, leads to something and then <laughs> it pops up.
1: Uh, I mean, one thing, I, one thing that I could consider that I have thought about from time to time, I used to, I used to, uh, ride a bicycle more often. Um, I actually don't have a a good bicycle now for riding on the streets. I ride a stationary bike. Sometimes (laughs) that's one of my forms of exercise, either at the gym at Duke or we have one. Um, but Taking a bike ride out into the world—that although that's not really—that uh, probably doesn't quite fit the bill because it's not. Unless I were doing it for transportation, it's not really making a difference. It's just—it's a, a way of getting out there, but it's not. uh It's not something that's, say, reducing impact on the environment or anything like
0: that. If you're doing it for awe or for magic, then—and yeah. I mean, if you were going to be watching TV instead. <laughs> it would fit the bill. Yeah, it, it, The magnitude is not, that's not the point. It's right, I, I'm not saying like, how are we going to fix the world? Right. Because I know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that if you do it for the reasons that to manifest some of the things you, you've had walking in the woods and, you, and you, it might, you might get a different angle on it, riding the bike, if that's something interesting to you, maybe it'll fix the world. Yeah. Could be. But if you do it for those reasons, I predict that when you come back and share you'll be glad you did and beyond what you think you will
1: yeah yeah that would involve a purchase that i may not that i'm not probably likely to make right now of you know like buying a bike mm-hmm. <laughs> i was i was quite uh what's the word uh compelled by your your talk about stopping air travel mm-hmm. And that's something that I'm feeling very challenged about these days. We had a little email exchange about this. And as I said, I you know there were two and a half years there without without any. There have been times, given what I do for a living, when I have flown, you know, once a month. Mm-hmm. Because I've been, you know, I was a reporter for NPR or for, you know, a national documentary unit and pretty much got on a plane for every project I did, maybe multiple times. and. More recently, it's been, you know, a handful of flights a year. And then, of course, the pandemic hit and I didn't fly once for two and a half years. And I've taken a few flights now this year, all having to do with um, visiting family. In one case, my wife is Polish. She hadn't seen her parents in Poland for three years. Mm -hmm. We went to Poland. You know, I, I don't know that I would not do that. I certainly feel already perfectly comfortable with having sort of raised the bar and and that going forward, the bar will ha- be higher for me that I wouldn't just get on a plane without thinking, is there a way, do I need to do this mm-hmm. and flying less? Um, but I'm going to think hard about, <laughs> you know, at what point or am I ready soon to declare that I'm just not going to fly anymore um, or extremely rarely. I don't know. I'm it's in the forefront of my mind maybe as a next as a next step that I need to face. So that there's there's that, but that's again that's that's not answering your question either about awe and
0: wonder. It takes this bit of exploration because yeah. it's we live in a world this is what you have to do. And it's very difficult to get out of that mode. Yeah. Into nature has the stuff that um people haven't been in the forests in yeah. the woods, as you have, don't know what they're missing. Yeah. And walking there, if, if it's their intrinsic reasons and they, and they get there, they'll probably get something like what you had. And are there things that...
1: So I have an idea. And tell me if this fits the bill. Uh, I tend to sit in bed at night with my laptop on my lap. And then I, I have a stack of books there, too and I try to get some reading done. Oftentimes it might be for the last half an hour before I turn out the lights that I'll read, Mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm pretty addicted to the screens and to, to the interactivity of the, of the screen where I can, uh, I can look at the latest on Twitter. I'm an addict, kind of an addict. My wife would say, yes, you're an addict. Um, I can pop over to the, to the New York times or the Washington post see if there's something new that happened. I can, you know, check my email for the 400th time today. And you can, you know, there's always this thing where there might be something new, right. And you might be able to get that tiny little dopamine hit because there's a new thing that came in. And I've said for some time that I'd like to turn off. I'd like to put the laptop away earlier in the evening and read more. So. And I guess there would, e- there would even be a small energy use component to that too. Would that qualify?
0: That would qualify perfectly. <laughs> it hits all the things because yeah. it's something, I hear that it's something you want to do, that there's something you expect that there's something on the other side of discovery that is, mm-hmm. you're being held back from. Now, technically the amount of power saved by the laptop isn't, might not seem very high, but there's these giant server farms that you're driving yeah. when you do that. yeah. And also I predict, and I don't want to leave the witness here, but I predict that you will see a greater connection between that power use, however small, and that addiction.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think there's something that you'll, I think this this thread that you're pulling attaches to more of the sweater than you might think. <laughs> I, I think you know that, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and you want to experience it. Yeah, yeah. It also fits the pattern of, People are like, I can't really think of anything. And then they're like, Oh, I've been meaning to do this.
1: Yeah. Right. Right.
0: Right. If you do this, if you came back, if you were willing to come back to share how it went, how long would it take for you to do it for, um, that if I said, how did it go? That you could say, uh, you'd have a meaningful answer. Yeah. And would you do this like one day a week or all, nonstop or is it, how would you do it? Like, good question. How to make it a smart goal. Uh,
1: I, it's easy. It would be easy for me to say, uh, yeah, that may, that would maybe be a good start. And that, that would make it easy for me to do because the other, the other factor is that, is that, uh, my wife and I sometimes watch, you know, we like streaming shows or whatever, mm-hmm. and we'll sit there in bed and watch stuff together till, uh, off until she falls asleep first. (laughs) But so it it actually, there's another person involved in some of this. If I I were to say, okay, you know, screens go off at 8 p.m. But that could just be for, but it would be pretty easy to say something like, to start by saying, okay, three days a week, I'm going to put the screen away, Mm -hmm. you know, a few hours earlier than I otherwise would. I could do that. I could do that starting now next week
0: and so if it was today's friday maybe it would be over the weekend or um
1: yeah you know it's maybe next week monday monday wednesday friday or something like that if i were to just choose you know choose days like that okay and i could i could plan to start that right away
0: and how long before if you if you're willing to come back for a second time to share how how long before you have a meaningful experience
1: i don't know i don't know what do you think a month
0: not, usually these things end up being two weeks, a month, yeah. I mean, sometimes six months or a year, but um, usually they come back well before the year if they right. do a really long one. Right.
1: We could play it by a year, but I would if we try a month and, and see if it feels like it's makes sense to talk about it at that point.
0: All right. So after we stop recording and before hanging up, uh, can we schedule the second conversation? Sure, sure. Okay. Sure. And do I, uh, I see a smile on your face, and I'm not sure if it's uh, – <laughs> I'm curious – let me ask this question. I walked you through this process, and you wouldn't have done it had I not led you through it. Are you doing this for me?
1: I guess to some extent, but I mean, I, I feel a little bit kind of prodded into it. Mm-hmm. But but as I indicated, it's something that I've been thinking about for some time and wanting to do. So, no, I think it's I, I'm, I'm appreciative. I, I'd check with me in a month as to whether I'm still appreciative, uh-huh. but, but yes, <laughs> I, I appreciate the nudge. Let's put it that way. And the, you know, the small prod to get me to commit to, to trying that change.
0: I'll note that before prodding or before the nudge, or before the invitation, I would say first was the question, what does the environment mean to you? What is mm. that was a lot of people listen and they say "and it's cool how you get people to do these little things, but to me, it's not little versus big. It's intrinsic versus extrinsic.
2: Yeah.
0: And that difference makes all the difference because that way I don't, I sacrifice direction. I can't say there's very little chance. I could have come on here and said, Hey, how about you go three days a week without uh, turning off the computer a little earlier? Yeah. But there's no way I could have guessed at that. And even if I had, would that be something related to your experience in the woods? I doubt it. Yeah. So I, but if, and if I wanted you to go without plastic water bottles for a while, I lost that because I don't know if you're going to connect with that. Yeah. But what I get, so I lose the magnitude and I lose the direction, but what I gain is if, well, we'll see how it works out. What I believe the gain is, is intrinsic motivation that there's, that it will feel more meaningful. And that whatever size is the first one, the next one will be bigger mm. because it's meaningful and purposeful. That's, I'm strongly leading the witness here. I'm not intending to do that. Anymore, <laughs> but I predict that that will happen. Yeah. And that the conversation that we have the second time will start about the experience. But I, I'll be curious how it leads you to think about acting on the environment. How does it, you know, this is one of the things we talked about earlier right. about BP or about systems and individual action versus systemic change, things like that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay.
0: So uh, I propose we table everything now and then pick it up next time. Sounds good. Although is there anything that we didn't cover that's worth bringing up? And I'm like, I could seriously talk about your, I think we barely scratched the surface of all the things I'd like to talk to you about. <laughs> but maybe any, any listener, any message to the listeners. Uh, and I'll have links to your episodes, uh, to the, to the, to the scene on radio.
1: Of course. Oh, I appreciate that to the series. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Nothing immediately comes to mind because right on the, on the one hand, we, we only talked about a few of the possible things, but I also, I feel good about, I feel like we said a lot of the important stuff. Um, So I would, yeah, I would, I would invite people to, uh, to listen to those series. One thing we didn't talk very much about is patriarchy. And, uh, but I think people can, I think probably your listeners understand, even to the extent that we talked about it and without us talking about it, the ways in which that is a, a really important piece of the puzzle of how we got to where we are. In fact, at one point we say in the uh, it's in the context I think of talking about both in talking about racism and in talking about the kind of capitalist and uh, economic exploitation that led us to hell in terms of our relationship with the non-human natural world, but that patriarchy might have been the original sin historically where Men sort of seized the upper hand. and said, "I'm going to, I'm going to subordinate half the population, and you are going to serve me. You're going to serve my needs." Um, and then, as the poet, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the poet's name, but the poet who 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 coined the term thingification.
0: Oh, you talked about that a lot, yeah. Right,
1: the objectification, the term making an object into into another human being in this case. And then later we applied that. The thing that we thingified people that we decided were quote unquote inferior, namely African people. And we thingified the earth and the land and the trees and the so-called natural resources that they were there. It's all there to serve us. And that maybe Patriarchy was the kind of the, the template for all of the, all of what followed. Oh, and then you know, it's somewhere like people of a different religion, they're in, they're they're you know they're heathens and therefore they're inferior, and we can exploit and oppress and abuse them too. Right? So, so all these ways that we drew these lines between quote unquote us and someone or something else that we that gave us permission. To exploit and use that thing. So I think all you know the, these are all. It's just useful to reflect on on how that runs through so much, and then that we just take it so much of it for granted now, given that hundreds of years of this of this culture that we're all part of, and in the case of patriarchy, thousands of years.
0: <laughs> I want to dive in, but I'll keep it at a high level. But now, up until this they wanted to listen to two episodes, uh, two uh, seasons. Now, now the third season, they listen to all three. Oh, there's more than, I guess there's five. I've only listened to three. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I think I'll have the links, but I'm going to add to that, like, and my recommendations to listen to it. There's no way you can not learn and think. And it's, just, you dove into some really big topics and uh, John B. thank you very much.
1: It's been a pleasure, Josh. I'm flattered and honored by the invitation and I've enjoyed the conversation very much. Thanks.
0: How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.